Chapter 16 of The Iron Heel by Jack London This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Matt Saw The End When it came time for Ernest and me to go to Washington, Father did not accompany us. He had become enamoured of proletarian life. He looked upon our slum neighbourhood as a great sociological laboratory and he had embarked upon an apparently endless orgy of investigation. He chummed with the laborers, and was an intimate in scores of homes. Also he worked at odd jobs, and the work was play as well as learned investigation, for he delighted in it, and was always returning home with copious notes and bubbling over with new adventures. He was the perfect scientist. There was no need for his working at all, because Ernest managed to earn enough for his translating to take care of the three of us, but Father insisted on pursuing his favorite phantom, and a protean phantom it was judging from the jobs he worked at. I shall never forget the evening he brought home his street peddler's outfit of shoelaces and suspenders, nor the time I went into the little corner grocery to make some purchase and had him wait on me. After that I was not surprised when he tended bar for a week in the saloon across the street. He worked as a night watchman, hawked potatoes on the street, pasted labels in a cannery warehouse, was utility man in a paper-box factory, and water carrier for a street railway construction gang, and even joined the dishwasher's union just before it fell to pieces. I think the bishop's example, so far as wearing apparel was concerned, must have fascinated father, for he wore the cheap cotton shirt of the labourer and the overalls with a narrow strap about the hips. Yet one habit remained to him from the old life. He always dressed for dinner, or supper, rather. I could be happy anywhere with Ernest, and father's happiness in our changed circumstances rounded out my own happiness. When I was a boy, father said, I was very curious— I wanted to know why things were and how they came to pass. That was why I became a physicist. The life in me today is just as curious as it was in my boyhood, and it's the being curious that makes life worth living. Sometimes he ventured north of Market Street into the shopping and theatre district, where he sold papers, ran errands, and opened cabs. There, one day, closing a cab, he encountered Mr. Wixon. In high glee, father described the incident to us that evening. Wixon looked at me sharply when I closed the door on him, and muttered, "'Well, I'll be damned.' Just like that he said it, "'Well, I'll be damned.' His face turned red, and he was so confused that he forgot to tip me. But he must have recovered himself quickly, for the cab hadn't gone fifty feet before it turned around and came back. He leaned out of the door. "'Look here, Professor,' he said. "'This is too much. What can I do for you?' "'I closed the cab door for you,' I answered. "'According to common custom, you might give me a dime.' "'Bother that!' he snorted. "'I mean something substantial.' He was certainly serious, a twinge of ossified conscience or something, and so I considered with grave deliberation for a moment. His face was quite expectant when I began my answer, but you should have seen it when I finished. "'You might give me back my home,' I said, "'and my stock in the Sierra Mills.' Father paused. "'What did he say?' I questioned eagerly. "'What could he say? He said nothing.' But I said, I hope you are happy. He looked at me curiously. Tell me, are you happy? I asked. He ordered the cabman to drive on, and went away swearing horribly, and he didn't give me the dime, much less the home and stock. So you see, my dear, your father's street Arab career is beset with disappointments. And so it was that father kept on at our Pell Street quarters, while Ernest and I went to Washington. Except for the final consummation, the old order had passed away, and the final consummation was nearer than I dreamed. Contrary to our expectation, no obstacles were raised to prevent the socialist congressmen from taking their seats. 
everything went smoothly, and I laughed at Ernest when he looked upon the very smoothness as something ominous. We found our socialist comrades confident, optimistic of their strength and of the things they would accomplish. A few Grangers who had been elected to Congress increased our strength, and an elaborate program of what was to be done was prepared by the United Forces, in all of which Ernest joined loyally and energetically, though he could not forbear, now and again from saying, apropos of nothing in particular, when it comes to powder, chemical mixtures are better than mechanical mixtures. You take my word. The trouble arose first with the Grangers in the various states they had captured at the last election. There were a dozen of these states, but the Grangers who had been elected were not permitted to take office. The incumbents refused to get out. It was very simple. They merely charged illegality in the elections, and wrapped up the whole situation in the interminable red tape of the law. The Grangers were powerless. The courts were in the hands of their enemies. This was the moment of danger. If the cheated Grangers became violent, all was lost. Now we socialists worked to hold them back. There were days and nights when Ernest never closed his eyes in sleep. The big leaders of the Grangers saw the peril and were with us to a man. But it was all of no avail. The oligarchy wanted violence, and it set its agent provocateur to work. Without discussion, it was the agent provocateur who caused the peasant revolt. In a dozen states the revolt flared up. The expropriated farmers took forcible possession of the state governments. Of course this was unconstitutional, and of course the United States put its soldiers into the field. Everywhere the agent provocateur urged the people on. These emissaries of the Iron Heel disguised themselves as artisans, farmers, and farm laborers. In Sacramento, the capital of California, the Grangers had succeeded in maintaining order. Thousands of secret agents were rushed to the devoted city. In mobs composed wholly of themselves, they fired and looted buildings and factories. They worked the people up until they joined them in the pillage. Liquor in large quantities was distributed among the slum classes further to inflame their minds. And then, when all was ready, appeared upon the scene the soldiers of the United States, who were, in reality, the soldiers of the Iron Heel. Eleven thousand men, women, and children were shot down on the streets of Sacramento or murdered in their houses. The national government took possession of the state government, and all was over for California. And as with California, so elsewhere. Every Granger state was ravaged with violence and washed in blood. First, disorder was precipitated by the secret agents and the black hundreds. Then the troops were called out. Rioting and mob rule reigned throughout the rural districts. Day and night the smoke of burning farms, warehouses, villages, and cities filled the sky. Dynamite appeared. Railroad bridges and tunnels were blown up and trains were wrecked. The poor farmers were shot and hanged in great numbers. Reprisals were bitter, and many plutocrats and army officers were murdered. Blood and vengeance were in men's hearts. The regular troops fought the farmers as savagely as had they been Indians. And the regular troops had cause. Twenty-eight hundred of them had been annihilated in a tremendous series of dynamite explosions in Oregon, and, in a similar manner, a number of trainloads at different times and places had been destroyed. So it was that the regular troops fought for their lives, as well as did the farmers. As for the militia, the militia law of 1903 was put into effect, and the workers of one state were compelled, under pain of death, to shoot down their comrade workers in other states— of course, the militia law did not work smoothly at first. Many militia officers were murdered, and many militiamen were executed by drumhead court-martial. Ernest's prophecy was strikingly fulfilled in the cases of Mr. Kowalt and Mr. Asmundson. Both were eligible for the militia, and both were drafted to serve in the punitive expedition that was dispatched from California against the farmers of Missouri. Mr. Kowalt and Mr. Asmundson refused to serve. 
They were given short shrift. Drumhead court-martial was their portion, and military execution their end. They were shot with their backs to the firing squad. Many young men fled into the mountains to escape serving in the militia. There they became outlaws, and it was not until more peaceful times that they received their punishment. It was drastic. The government issued a proclamation for all law-abiding citizens to come in from the mountains for a period of three months. When the proclaimed date arrived, half a million soldiers were sent into the mountainous districts everywhere. There was no investigation, no trial. Wherever a man was encountered, he was shot down on the spot. The troops operated on the basis that no man, not an outlaw, remained in the mountains. Some bands in strong positions fought gallantly, but in the end, every deserter from the militia met death. A more immediate lesson, however, was impressed on the minds of the people by the punishment meted out to the Kansas militia. The great Kansas mutiny occurred at the very beginning of military operations against the Grangers. Six thousand of the militia mutinied. They had been for several weeks very turbulent and sullen, and for that reason had been kept in camp. Their open mutiny, however, was without doubt precipitated by the agent provocateur. On the night of the 22nd of April, they arose and murdered their officers, only a small remnant of the latter escaping. This was beyond the scheme of the Iron Heel, for the agent provocateur had done their work too well. But everything was grist to the Iron Heel. It had prepared for the outbreak, and the killing of so many officers gave it justification for what followed. As by magic, 40,000 soldiers of the regular army surrounded the malcontent. It was a trap. The wretched militiamen found that their machine-guns had been tampered with, and that the cartridges from the captured magazines did not fit their rifles. They hoisted the white flag of surrender, but it was ignored. There were no survivors. The entire six thousand were annihilated. Common shell and shrapnel were thrown in upon them from a distance, and when, in their desperation, they charged the encircling lines, they were mowed down by the machine-guns. I talked with an eyewitness and he said that the nearest any militiaman approached the machine-guns was a hundred and fifty yards. The earth was carpeted with the slain, and a final charge of cavalry, with trampling of horses' hooves, revolvers, and sabres, crushed the wounded into the ground. Simultaneously with the destruction of the Grangers came the revolt of the coal-miners. It was the expiring effort of organized labor. Three-quarters of a million of miners went out on strike, but they were too widely scattered over the country to advantage from their own strength. They were segregated in their own districts and beaten into submission. This was the first great slave drive. Pocock won his spurs as a slave driver and earned the undying hatred of the proletariat. Countless attempts were made upon his life, but he seemed to bear a charmed existence. It was he who was responsible for the introduction of the Russian passport system among the miners and the denial of their right to have removal from one part of the country to another. Note. Albert Pocock, another of the notorious strike-breakers of earlier years, who to the day of his death successfully held all the coal-miners of the country to their task. He was succeeded by his son, Lewis Pocock, and for five generations this remarkable line of slave-drivers handled the coal-mines. The elder Pocock, known as Pocock I, has been described as follows. A long, lean head, semicircled by a fringe of brown and grey hair, with big cheekbones and a heavy chin, a pale face, lustreless grey eyes, a metallic voice, and a languid manner. He was born of humble parents and began his career as a bartender. He next became a private detective for a street railway corporation, and by successive steps developed into a professional strike-breaker. 
Pocock V, the last of the line, was blown up in a pump-house by a bomb during a petty revolt of the miners in the Indian Territory. This occurred in 2073 A.D. In the meantime, the socialists held firm. While the Grangers expired in flame and blood, and organized labor was disrupted, the socialists held their peace and perfected their secret organization. In vain the Grangers pleaded with us. We rightly contended that any revolt on our part was virtually suicide for the whole revolution. The Iron Heel, at first dubious about dealing with the entire proletariat at one time, had found the work easier than it had expected, and would have asked nothing better than an uprising on our part. But we avoided the issue, in spite of the fact that agents provocateurs swarmed in our midst. In those early days, the agents of the Iron Heel were clumsy in their methods. They had much to learn, and in the meantime our fighting groups weeded them out. It was bitter, bloody work, but we were fighting for life, and for the revolution, and we had to fight the enemy with its own weapons. Yet we were fair. No agent of the Iron Heel was executed without a trial. We may have made mistakes, but if so, very rarely. The bravest and the most combative and self-sacrificing of our comrades went into the fighting groups. Once, after ten years had passed, Ernest made a calculation from figures furnished by the chiefs of the fighting groups, and his conclusion was that the average life of a man or woman after becoming a member was five years. The comrades of the fighting groups were heroes all, and the peculiar thing about it was that they were opposed to the taking of life. They violated their own natures, yet they loved liberty, and knew of no sacrifice too great to make for the cause. Note. These fighting groups were modelled somewhat after the fighting organization of the Russian Revolution, and despite the unceasing efforts of the Iron Heel, these groups persisted throughout the three centuries of its existence. Composed of men and women actuated by lofty purpose and unafraid to die, the fighting groups exercised tremendous influence and tempered the savage brutality of the rulers. Lot alone was their work confined to unseen warfare with the secret agents of the oligarchy. The oligarchs themselves were compelled to listen to the decrees of the groups, and often, when they disobeyed, were punished by death, and likewise with the subordinates of the oligarchs, with the officers of the army and the leaders of the labor castes. Stern justice was meted out by these organized avengers, but most remarkable was their passionless and judicial procedure. There were no snap judgments. When a man was captured, he was given fair trial and opportunity for defense. Of necessity, many men were tried and condemned by proxy, as in the case of General Lampton. This occurred in 2138 A.D., possibly the most bloodthirsty and malignant of all the mercenaries that ever served the Iron Heel. He was informed by the fighting groups that they had tried him, found him guilty, and condemned him to death. And this, after three warnings for him to cease from his ferocious treatment of the proletariat, after his condemnation he surrounded himself with a myriad protective devices. Years passed, and in vain the fighting groups strove to execute their decree— Comrade after comrade, men and women, failed in their attempts, and were cruelly executed by the oligarchy. It was the case of General Lampton that revived crucifixion as a legal method of execution. But in the end, the condemned man found his executioner in the form of a slender girl of seventeen, Madeleine Provence, who, to accomplish her purpose, served two years in his palace as a seamstress to the household. She died in solitary confinement after horrible and prolonged torture. But today she stands in imperishable bronze in the pantheon of brotherhood, in the wonder city of Searle. We, who by personal experience know nothing of bloodshed, must not judge harshly the heroes of the fighting groups. They gave up their lives for humanity, no sacrifice was too great for them to accomplish, while inexorable necessity compelled them to bloody expression in an age of blood. The fighting groups constituted the one thorn in the side of the Iron Heel that the Iron Heel could never remove. 
Everhard was the father of this curious army, and its accomplishments and successful persistence for three hundred years bear witness to the wisdom with which he organized and the solid foundation he laid for the succeeding generations to build upon. In some respects, despite his great economic and sociological contributions, and his work as a general leader in the revolution, his organization of the fighting groups must be regarded as his greatest achievement. The task we set ourselves was threefold. First, the weeding out from our circles of the secret agents of the oligarchy. Second, the organizing of the fighting groups, and outside of them, of the general secret organization of the revolution. And third, the introduction of our own secret agents into every branch of the oligarchy, into the labor castes, and especially among the telegraphers and secretaries and clerks, into the army, the agents provocateurs, and the slave drivers. It was slow work and perilous, and often were our efforts rewarded with costly failures. The Iron Heel had triumphed in open warfare, but we held our own in the new warfare, strange and awful and subterranean, that we instituted. All was unseen, much was unguessed, the blind fought the blind, and yet through it all was order, purpose, control. We permeated the entire organization of the Iron Heel with our agents, while our own organization was permeated with the agents of the Iron Heel. It was warfare, dark and devious, replete with intrigue and conspiracy, plot and counterplot, and behind all, ever menacing, was death, violent and terrible. Men and women disappeared, our nearest and dearest comrades. We saw them today. Tomorrow they were gone. We never saw them again. And we knew that they had died. There was no trust, no confidence anywhere. The man who plotted beside us, for all we knew, might be an agent of the Iron Heel. We mined the organization of the Iron Heel with our secret agents, and the Iron Heel countermined with its secret agents inside its own organization. And it was the same with our organization. And despite the absence of confidence and trust, we were compelled to base our every effort on confidence and trust. Often were we betrayed. Men were weak. The Iron Heel could offer money, leisure, the joys and pleasures that awaited in the repose of the wonder cities. We could offer nothing but the satisfaction of being faithful to a noble ideal. As for the rest, the wages of those who were loyal were unceasing peril, torture, and death. Men were weak, I say, and because of their weakness, we were compelled to make the only other reward that was within our power. It was the reward of death. Out of necessity, we had to punish our traitors. For every man who betrayed us, from one to a dozen faithful avengers were loosed upon his heels. We might fail to carry out our decrees against our enemies, such as the Pococks, for instance, but the one thing we could not afford to fail in was the punishment of our own traitors. Comrades turned traitor by permission, in order to win to the wonder cities, and there execute our sentences on the real traitors. In fact, so terrible did we make ourselves, that it became a greater peril to betray us than to remain loyal to us. The revolution took on largely the character of religion. We worshipped at the shrine of the revolution, which was the shrine of liberty. It was the divine flashing through us. Men and women devoted their lives to the cause, and newborn babes were sealed to it, as of old they had been sealed to the service of God. We were lovers of humanity. End of chapter 16 Recording by Matt Saw, Montreal MattSaw.org